Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. L'sachmod beis re'echa, do not covet the house of your friend. L'sachmod eishas re'echa, do not covet the wife of your friend. V'avdo v'amaso v'sharo v'chamoro, nor his servant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his chamor, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do not covet. And this is one of the Aserasa Dibros, one of the basic tenets of our religion. And the Eben Ezra explains that Losachmod is often misunderstood. When you think about Losachmod, it means you think of it as like lusting. Do not lust and have a deep desire. He explains, you look in Devarim, and the Torah uses two expressions, Losachmod and Losisave. Losisave means don't desire. It means don't look at an object that your neighbor has and desire it. That means to say, when it says losachmod over here, it doesn't mean necessarily some deep, unimaginable lust that you can't control, but don't look with desire. Don't look with desire at your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's possessions. Look what you have, enjoy what you have, do not desire that which your neighbor has. And then the Ebenezer is bothered by an obvious question. How could the Torah tell me not to desire something? Imagine my friend drives up in a beautiful car, and it's exactly the type of car I wanted, exactly the model, brand new, it's gorgeous. You could tell me don't steal it, you could tell me don't take revenge. What do you mean don't desire? I look at it, it's beautiful, I want it. How could you tell me not to desire something that's beautiful to the eye? And then Ebenezer explains that this is a fundamental error. He says, I'll give you a mushal. Imagine you have a simple villager. And the way things work, once a year the king comes to visit, and that year he brings with him his entire family, including the princess. And the princess rides in her special entourage, in her entire carriage, with all the pomp and ceremony. And the villager looks at the princess, and she's a beautiful woman. The villager, in his wildest dreams, would not imagine marrying that princess. He's a common person. So therefore, he's not going to desire because she's so remote, so removed, so distant, that he's not going to desire her. So too, the Ebenezer explains, a person has to understand that Hashem decrees exactly that which a person should get, which house, which possessions, which wife. And when a person understands that I can only acquire that which Hashem decrees shall be mine, then he'll recognize that the house of his friend, the wife of his friend, the possessions of his friends belong to his friend, and I can't get them. They'll be so distant, so remote, so removed from me, that it'll be like the villager who would never dream about the princess. I wouldn't dream about having wings to fly. I may desire things, but I don't desire fanciful, ridiculous things. Says Evan Ezra, when a person is a maskil, when a person has wisdom and understanding, he'll recognize that Hashem decrees exactly that which each person gets, and therefore he won't come to covet, won't come to desire. Why? Because it's so removed, so distant, 
it'd be like my sprouting wings to fly. I would never dream about that. I'm not going to stand by the edge of a cliff and well, imagine I have wings. I wouldn't, if I'm the villager, I would never imagine desiring the princess. So too, the possessions of my neighbor are so far removed, so distant that I would never desire them. And that, Devin has explained, is how one keeps this mitzvah. And that, Devin has explained, is losachmod. And if you think about this, Evan Ezra, I believe that it's very, very difficult to understand. Because desire is one of the most base, powerful instincts in the human. It ruins people's careers, ruins their lives. And what the Evan Ezra is telling me is, if I have betochen, if I know that Hashem decrees which person gets what, it's going to quench my desire. I'm not going to, it doesn't make any sense. Betochen is one of the weakest features Halavai, we get some level of bitachon. Halavai, we get it to some degree. But you're pitting one of the weakest forces we have against one of the most powerful des- things called desire. And desire is something that's overarching and overreaching. It plagues a person, it bothers a person. How could you tell me not to desire the wife of my friend when she's beautiful, when she's attractive? What do you mean the, 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 the village is not going to desire the princess? It's very nice. It's a wonderful mushal, but desire is a base instinct and desire is powerful. The question is, what is the Ebenezer saying? How is he giving us a formula to actually work on this? And I'd like to spend a little time seeing if we could better understand exactly that which Ebenezer is sharing with us. And to do that, let's focus on an interesting phenomenon. Beauty and desirability changes with cultures and with times. If you look back in history, you'll find that at different times, in different situations, different elements were considered beautiful and different elements were considered desirable. If you go back to ancient Greek, you had to be a very, very wealthy person to be heavy. As a matter of fact, through most of mankind's history, the only people who could afford to be overweight were very wealthy people. The average person barely had enough to eat. The average person barely was skin and bones. And to actually be large, you had to be a very wealthy person. As a matter of fact, they used to talk about in Europe, pre-World War I, really in the 1800s, they used to talk about a balbusser. A balbusser was a corpulent man, a big man. When a balbusser walked into the steeple, people, ooh, he must be a wealthy man. He's big. He's huge. Look at the size of him. He must be phenomenally rich. To be able to consume that much food and to be able to have more than what you need, to that extent, you must be extremely wealthy. And a balbusser was a sign of nobility, a sign of honor. And if you look back in the ancient cultures, you find that women who were large were often desired. In ancient Greek, a large, overweight woman was considered the image of attraction. And those cultures that was considered desirable. If you look in Africa, in India, in various cultures, it's considered a sign of beauty. In the Pacific Island cultures, an overweight large woman is considered very, very desirable. As a matter of fact, what's very interesting is they talk about a certain African king who had many wives. But before he would marry a woman, he would fatten her up. But I mean fatten her up to the extent that she couldn't walk. Because in that culture, the larger more attractive, and for a king, nothing but the best. His wives had to be so large that they couldn't walk. And in those cultures, in those times, large, overweight, was considered very, very attractive, very desirable. If you speak to a shotgun today, 
and you ask a question about a young woman who's overweight, you're going to hear every euphemism in the world that refers to any aspect of that young woman except for her weight. Special chain, wonderful midos, beautiful person. Because in our culture, it's no longer that way. Thin is in, thin is desirable, and that which used to be desirable is no longer. But you see, that's just one phenomena. Let's discuss another one. For many, many generations, being tanned, having dark skin, was considered a sign of low class. Workers were in the field. Workers had to be outdoors. They were constantly exposed to the sun. And it was considered a sign of a labor of a peasant to have very, very tanned, dark skin. As a matter of fact, in the 18th century, fashionable European women would paint their skins white. In the 19th century, they used to carry parasols. As a matter of fact, in China and Japan, parasols were a regular part of a lady's dress because the whiter the skin, the more they were considered attractive. Tanned was considered ugly. But yet, in our day and age, that's no longer the case. In our day and age, tanned is considered very attractive. Tanned is considered a look of healthy, of vitality. What changed? What changed was the object of desirability, meaning to say there are some things that are considered very attractive, some things that are not considered attractive, but they're learned tastes. And if you'd like an example of this, I want you to imagine for a minute a fellow brought up in China. Imagine a fellow from the time he was born, he was brought up in China, and every single woman he ever had any exposure to was slight of build, straight black hair, and slanty eyes. And that's how he grew up. His sisters, his mother, every woman he ever saw was that way. Now he turns 18, 20, 22. He's now ready to go out. And they introduce him to a large-boned, blonde-haired young woman. Ooh, it's strange. It's weird. Anything he's ever seen is slight of build, straight hair, slanty eyes. And that's a woman. And that's desirable. And really, this is the point. Desire is innate. But what you desire is learnt. And I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. We only desire that which is desirable. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Imagine a fellow goes to the Bronx Zoo, and he passes the, the monkey house, and he sees an ape. What a gorgeous ape! I mean, that orangutan, that beautiful orangutan, wow! I think we'd be hard-pressed to imagine a fellow attracted to an ape. Why? Because that's not desirable. We desire things that are desirable, but no matter how filled with desire a person is, you're not going to desire an ape, an orangutan. You just don't desire that. You see, desire is innate, but we learn to desire different things. There are certain things that are not desirable at all, and your tastes can be developed, and what you desire can change. And I'll give you another very simple example of that. A 15-year-old boy who is attracted to a 14-year-old girl, is developmentally normal and healthy. And as a matter of fact, if he's not attracted to a 14-year-old girl, we have to wonder. Okay, fine and well. But what happens when he's 45? When he's 45, if he's attracted to 14-year-old girls, we have a real problem. But why? When he was 15, it was normal. What happened? Well, the answer is your tastes are supposed to change. Your taste and that which you desire grow up with you. You see, desire is innate. Desire is basic to the human. 
but that which you desire can be trained, can be learned. Typically, it's learned in a very unconscious manner. It's what other people consider desirable. It's what society shows you as desirable. But these are things that can be shaped, and these are things that can be learned. And what the Ebenezer is explaining to us is a very simple concept. And that is, a young man could have a beautiful mother, gorgeous, but he's not going to desire his mother. Unless he's really perverse, and I mean extremely perverse, he's not going to desire his mother. Why? Because since the time he's a little boy, that's a mother. My mother's not an object of desire, that's a mother. And no matter how attractive she is, no matter how beautiful she is, he looks at her as a mother, not as an object of desire. And that's rather curious. Why? Because she might be drop-dead gorgeous. She might be far more attractive than girls he <clears throat> goes out with. But yet he's not going to desire her. Why? Because, again, desire itself is natural and instinctive. But that which we desire, we can train. Sometimes, it typically, we're trained by <clears throat> unconsciously without being aware of it. But it's something that a person can train himself in. And I'd like to share with you one of the most basic Seferachinuchs that a person must know if they'd like to be happily married. The Seferachinuch says that there's a mitzvah for the first year for the husband and wife to spend as much time together as possible. And aside for everything else, the Seferachinuch explains there's a particular reason for this. He says, Hashem wants the couple to join together. And Hashem wants a husband to be devoted to his wife and wants to have <clears throat> that husband to have eyes for his wife only. And a person is supposed to spend the first year of his marriage being with his wife as much as he can so that she imprints onto his mind. So that it becomes normal, it becomes regular. This is the way a woman walks. This is the way a woman talks. This is the way a woman holds her pen. <clears throat> this is what a woman is. And explains to Sevechinuch, you're supposed to spend so much time together, and spend so much time having her image imprinted into your mind, that this becomes a woman, and anything else is strange, is foreign. It's supposed to imprint into your brain, this is a woman, and anything else is, I don't know, it's like, a, like an ape, like an orangutan. I don't desire the woman, why? Because this is a woman. Anything else is strange, they don't walk the right way, they don't talk the right way, they're just, they're just different. And the Sefer Chinuch explains that's one of the main reasons why a person is supposed to spend so much time together, besides building the relationship, but imprinting into his mind that this is what a wife is. This is what a woman is. Now, to be honest with you, in our day and age, it's a little bit challenging. When I was a young fellow growing up, in the base medrash, you were protected. There were walls, and you were protected. There's Wi-Fi today and no place is safe and a person is bombarded with images and constantly assailed. So the Sefer Barachinuch becomes much more difficult really to accomplish because to spend a year imprinting your wife as what a woman is into your brain becomes very difficult when you're constantly assailed with images and different pictures and different people and it becomes much more difficult. But that's exactly the concept. The concept is you're supposed to train your mind that this is a woman and nothing else is a woman. And I tell guys on a regular basis, it is a wise man who keeps a picture of his wife on his phone. First of all, it's the biggest compliment to your wife that you keep a picture of her, but more than that, you're going to be out there in the world and there's going to be people, women, 
you don't want to look at them with desire. You have a picture of your wife in your mind's eye. You have a picture of your wife on your phone. You constantly program yourself, this is a woman and nothing else is. This I'm attracted to, no one else I'm attracted to. And if you train yourself and don't just allow yourself to become what the natural nature of man is, you could become elevated, you could become holy, and you could develop eyes for your wife and your wife alone. However, if you don't work on this, then all bets are off. I got a call a while back from a guy who says to me, Rabbi, I'm married for six months now, and um, I have a problem. Oh, what's the problem? The problem is I'm, I'm, I'm not attracted to my wife. I, I just don't find her attractive, the shape of her face. I just don't find her attractive. I said, that's a little strange. You married six months. Tell me, when you were going out, and did you find her attractive? Yeah, 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 she was. And then you decided to marry her? So what, what, what changed? It didn't take me that long to dig in to find out what the problem was. The problem was that this fellow was spending an hour a day on his phone on pornography. Now guess what? If you spend an hour a day imprinting into your brain another woman's image, if you spend an hour a day looking at another woman with desire and coveting her and wanting her, well guess what? She's going to become attractive, she's going to become an object of desire, and your wife isn't going to be. And I have a little bit of advice. If you'd like to be happily married, if you don't do this, I guarantee you will not be. And I'll share with you quite simply why. On this planet, there are seven and a half billion people. We'll get rid of half because they're male. We'll get rid of the older, the younger. There are probably well within half a billion, if not a billion women who you will find attractive. And if you walk down the street and allow your eye to go left, to go right, to go wherever it is, and look and desire and whatever, well, guess what? You're going to be in a constant state of programming your mind. That's a beautiful woman. No, that's a beautiful woman. No, that's a beautiful woman. That's a beautiful woman. And you get home and you Because I don't care how drop-dead gorgeous your wife is. There's taller, there's shorter, there's a different shape, different color, different hair. And no matter what happens... If you don't train your mind to see your wife as attractive and only your wife as attractive, and more than that, your wife is a woman and no one else is a woman, you're going to have an eye that wanders and you're going to have a mind that constantly lusts and you're going to be in a very unhappy state of affairs. And what the Sefer HaChinuch is teaching us is the first year particularly you're supposed to spend an inordinate amount of time because you're supposed to program your mind and I believe that's what the Ebenezer is teaching us. You see, the Kafri, the villager, doesn't think about the princess with desire. It's so removed, so the princess. Come on, what connection do I have a simple village after the princess? So he never thinks of her. He never thinks of her as an object of desire. She's so removed, so distant. It's like, it's not like an ape, like an orangutan, because it's not an object in a zoo, but it's so distant that he never thinks of her in those terms. Just like a young man never thinks of his mother as an object of desire, when he thinks about the princess, she's so distant, so removed, he doesn't look at her with desire. Explains Evan Ezra, that's what a masculine, a wise person has to understand. Hashem decrees exactly that which a person is supposed to have. Which house, which field, which wife. And Hashem runs the world. And I have to realize I cannot change it. And therefore, says the Evan Ezra, and the person has wisdom will understand that my neighbor's wife is so distant, so removed, it's like the villager to the prince. I, in a billion years, I can't have that. I don't even think about it. It doesn't enter my conscious mind, and it doesn't become an object of desire. 
And what the Ebenezer is teaching us is that while we can't so easily control desire, that which we desire we can shape, we can change, we can mold ourselves into. And this is one of the great principles for growth in any area in life, especially in this area called desire, but really it's for any area of life. And I'd like to give you one or two more examples, and then we'll expand it into how far this concept goes. A little while ago, I get a call from a fellow out of the country. Rabbi, thank you. I'm so glad I got through. I'm having a real problem. What's the problem? He's a young married fellow learning a kolo, and he's in a very small town. He's in a very small town, and he can't help but bump into this young married woman, not his wife, and he's attracted to her. And he can't get her image out of his brain. And he's constantly thinking about her. And think, And when he finally gets a little bit out of her brain, he'll meet her in the supermarket or meet her at school. Or and, he, and he can't avoid her. What does he do? He can't get the image of this other woman out of his mind. What could he do? And this fellow has a real problem. And because, again, it is a small town, and he can't avoid her, and he's going to see her and desire, and the image is going to come back and back and back. What does he do? So I gave him a piece of advice. I told him, young man, it's a serious problem. And if you want to deal with it, you need a serious solution. And I'll give you a serious solution, but you have to do it exactly as I'm telling you to do it. <clears throat> what you need to do is you need to go on the Internet and you need to find an image, a picture of a decaying corpse, but not just a cadaver. I mean a corpse that's been laying out in the field for weeks, for months, that's rotting you have to find yourself a body that's decaying. <clears throat> Take that image, print it out, and look at it, study it, emblazon it into your brain. And you have to look at it and look at it, and I need you to look at it for five minutes a day. I need you to look at that and see the disgust, see the body just decaying, the disgusting, the worms crawling out. The <clears throat> if you want to vomit, that's even better. And you imprint it into your brain. And now the second step. From now on, any time the image of that woman comes into your brain, you quickly switch to the image of the corpse. And any time if the image of that woman comes in, you switch to the corpse, I guarantee you're going to solve the problem. Now that is a <clears throat> difficult Musr exercise, but that is how you deal with the problem. <clears throat> because what you want to do is you want to associate what you consider desirable with something very ugly. You want to learn to connect the two. That that which I thought I desired, which was so desirable, it's so ugly. And you want to do a mental connection so that when the image of that woman comes into your mind's eye, boom, you bring up the mental image of the corpse. And the reason why this works is because that's exactly what the Ebenezer is teaching us. The thoughts of our minds are things that happen. But we can control them. And we can guide them. But the thoughts of my mind are not always true. The thoughts of my mind are not always accurate. But they definitely will shape the way I feel. There is a car magnet that reads as follows. Because the way I feel becomes the way I think, becomes who I am forever. If you don't have a schmooze magnet, go to the schmooze site. You can click on it's free. You can get it, but that expression, because the way we think becomes the way we feel, becomes who we are forever, is the basis of all Musr. It's what the Ebenezer is teaching us, 
but really it's what Chazal repeat over and over. You see, what I think, the thoughts that cross my mind, begin shaping the way I feel, begin shaping who I am, and I become that forever. But the first step to realize is that not every thought that I think is correct, and not every thought that I think was brought by me. Let's imagine that fellow right now who doesn't want to think about that young woman. I have a very simple question. He's learning Gemara, and he wants to think about the Tulsas, and he's thinking about the Tulsas, and all of a sudden the image of that woman comes into his brain. Get out of here! And he's back to the Tulsas. And then she comes back. Get out of here! He's back to the Tulsas. Get out! I don't get it. Who's bringing that image up? He doesn't want to think about her. He doesn't want to see that image. He wants to run from it like he's running from a fire. What brings the image back? And when you understand this concept, you understand the basis of who we are. You see, my brain is a computer. My brain thinks. My brain recalls. My brain processes information. But the computer can be controlled by different forces. If you'd like a muscle, imagine there's a family, five school-age kids, and one family computer. They're all eating supper, and immediately after supper, all five kids vie for the computer. Now, depending on who gets the computer, will determine what the keyboard shows, what the screen shows. If one child wants to work on his math homework, he's going to bring up Excel. Another child wants to play a video game, he's going to Bring up that. Whichever child gets control of the keyboard determines what we see on the monitor. But imagine that all five children have to watch the monitor. That is the brain. You see, the brain that I have, that I think through, that I process through, is controlled by different forces. When desire pulls it, then my brain gets hijacked. And desire now takes over my brain. And I don't want to think that thought, but the thought is there. When anger takes over, well, guess what? Someone else took over the keyboard. And now I am looking at that image in my brain that anger has brought up. And it changes my thinking, changes my way of viewing things. And when you get this concept, you're at the first stage of being able to work on yourself. Realizing that the thoughts that cross my conscious mind are not always correct and often not controlled by me. It could be desire, it could be jealousy, it could be anger, it could be arrogance. And the thoughts that cross my conscious mind are often false, often utterly, completely untrue. And just watch what happens when you get angry. I'm angry. I'm furious. And in that moment of anger, I say things that sound so clever at the time, sound so appropriate. But the next day, when I come back to my equilibrium, I look at myself and I'm aghast. What? Why did I say that? What made me, what was, I, what was I thinking? At the time, it sounded so clever. At the, sound, at the time, it sounded like it was so appropriate. But the minute I come out of that drunken state, I realize how foolish it was, how inappropriate it was. So what happened? What happened was, my brain, that computer got hijacked. Anger took over and started putting in the keys and then flashing across my conscious mind, that person deserves more, that person deserves to be squashed, that person deserves... And all of those thoughts that are crossing my brain, controlled by the anger typing into the keyboard, tell me things that are false, tell me things that are completely unbased. And when you realize this, 
<clears throat> you begin to realize how difficult it is for us to really control ourselves. The first step to realize is that not every thought that I think is correct and not every thought that I think comes from me. And again, if you imagine that fellow who doesn't want to think about that woman but the image comes into his brain, it's not he that wills it to be. It's not he that wants it to be. But that image is there. But that's where the choice begins and that's where the fight begins. And when the image comes into your brain, do you allow it to settle? Do you allow it to take over? Do you dwell on it? Do you think about it? Do you start lusting after it? Or do you replace it with something else? In the case of that fellow, he needed a very extreme antidote. And so I gave him the example of the corpse. And that's a way of controlling his thinking. Because when the image of desire, the object of desire comes into his brain, he doesn't immediately desire it. He has a split second where he can either reverse it, get her out and put something else in, in which case he doesn't come to desire, or he allows himself to desire her. But if he desires her at that moment, he's imprinting that image to be stronger and to be more powerful, to come up more often and to come up more vividly. And the opposite as well. If he immediately gets rid of the image and doesn't allow desire to settle into it, the image becomes weaker and weaker. It comes into his brain less often, less often. And what happens is the less you think about these thoughts, the more you divorce yourself from them, the more distant they become, the less powerful they become, and less often they bother you. However, if you don't take control, all bets are off. And many, many people walk around subjected to lust, to desire that they cannot control. They can't control because they allowed themselves for years and years to program their brain to desire certain things. And those images become so powerful and so strong and they keep coming back. And the more you think about it, the more you work on it, the more you allow it to be there, the stronger they become. The antidote is really quite simple. Stop thinking about it. How can I stop thinking about it? <laughs> that image comes into my brain, I don't want to think about it, but it's there. The answer is you can't not think about it. You have to replace it with something else. I usually tell people, you know, what's the first thing? If I tell you the following, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant. What's the first thing you think about a pink elephant? You can't not think about that object. You have to think about something else. You have to train yourself to have other images, to have other things in your brain, to have things that you bring up at will, so that when that image that you don't want comes up, you quickly switch off, quickly switch gears, put the other image in, and then that image that you don't want becomes weaker and weaker, becomes less and less bothersome, and eventually fades away. However, again, if you don't do this, all bets are off. I have an ongoing conversation with a fellow for a good long while now, and I'd like to share with you something very, very frightening. This fellow, when he was a bacher in yeshiva, was a tahar and a kadosh. He never was thought about women. He was not involved in anything. He was involved totally in learning, completely involved in learning. He got married. And when he got married, he discovered something interesting. He had a little bit, but only a little bit, a little bit of a desire for men. Still wanted his wife and was happily married, but had a little bit of a desire for men. But that was not his problem. His problem was, unfortunately, he has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. If you know anything about OCD, the thoughts, the obsessive thoughts keep plaguing and plaguing and plaguing. 
And if you don't deal with a trained professional who knows how to work with obsessive thinking, you're toast. And what happened to this fellow was he began thinking about the fact that maybe he desires men a little bit. And that began playing. Why do I desire men? I shouldn't desire, I should only desire my wife. I, I, but why? But why? But why? And he would get himself worked into this tizzy. And what he would be doing without even realizing it is reinforcing and reinforcing his desire for men because he constantly brought up his thought, constantly worried about it, constantly plagued himself about it. And I said to himself, I said to him, you have to stop. You have a very small problem and a major problem. Your very small problem is that you're a little bit attracted to men, but you're happily married still, and you still desire your wife. If you learn to control this obsessive thinking, you could be a very successfully married person, a very happy individual. But if you don't deal with a professional, and if you don't deal with this obsessive thinking, you're going to find yourself in a very, very unfortunate place. Well, I wasn't too convincing, and he didn't really accept, and we had ongoing conversations, and as time went on, his desire for men became stronger and stronger until after a long enough time, he got to a point where he only desired men and couldn't even bring himself to desire his wife. Because he kept bringing up men as an image of desire. And see, I want him. Why do I want him? Because I want him, but I want him, but I don't want him. I do, I do, but I do want him. I do, see, I do, I do, I don't know. And his brain would constantly dwell, constantly think, and he began attaching more desire to the image of a man, more desire, more desire, more desire, until he changed himself into a vastly different person. When he started out that way, it was not the way he was. When he started out, it was a little bit of an inclination. He d- deeply desired his wife, a little bit of an inclination for men, but he allowed himself more and more for that desire to become changed. He allowed himself to become far more in that direction. And he now finds himself in a very, very difficult situation because when you're married to a woman, you have children, and you want to be married to her, and you love her, but you don't desire her, you're in big trouble. And this really is the point that the Ebenezer is teaching us. And that is, desire is natural to a person. But what you desire is learnt. If you're brought up in a culture where all women are very slim, straight black hair, slanty eyes, that's what you're going to desire. If you're brought up in a culture where very large women is considered desirable, that's what you're going to desire. But you can control that. You can train yourself. You don't have to be subject to the whims and the fancies of desire. You can train yourself that this is a woman. My wife, that image, that's a woman and no one else is. But you have to do that. You have to train yourself. You have to emblazon that image in your brain. Train yourself that that is what a woman is. and no one, It's weird. It's ugly. It's disgusting. It's not a woman. It's weird. Whatever. It's weird. Now, in the beginning, it may feel strange. Cause I used to think she was so... It's not attractive. It's not even a woman. And you train yourself. And you emblazon the image of your wife in your brain. Train yourself more and more until that becomes something you desire and nothing else you do. Now, I'd like to share with you that this is not a concept about marriage alone. This concept applies to the entire gamut of human behaviors. Ebenezer explains that most of the mitzvahs are about our thinking. He says, Rov mitzvahs liyasher leva adam. Most mitzvahs are to straighten out man's heart. Think about it. The vast amount of mitzvahs have nothing to do with action. It has to do with thoughts, with feelings. Don't hate your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Don't take revenge. Don't desire. If you go through the mitzvahs, you'll find the vast majority of them have to do with inner condition. My state of thinking, my state of feeling, 
Yes, it's true, there are many mitzvahs that have to do with outside activity, but even those, the primary purpose of them is to perfect my thinking, is to perfect the way I feel. And what the Ebenezer is teaching us is that the most basic thing called desire, it can be shaped, and surely everything else. And that means I can train myself to love other people freely. I can train myself not to want to take revenge. I can train myself not to get angry. I can train myself not to be jealous. I can train myself not to get angry. That's called Musr. It's called Midos. But not just he was born with good Midos. She was born at Tzedekis. It's called working. But working requires thinking, dwelling, and working on it. And I'd like to share with you one more step. In the early 80s, there was a book that was published by Dr. David Burns, and it was a bestseller, and it revolutionized many, many people's thinking. The book is called Feeling Good, and the New Mood Therapy. And Dr. Burns was a psychiatrist, and this was the early 80s, and he, together with a few other physicians, began, a few other psychiatrists, and began exploring the concept of cognitive therapy, and that book was a big part of launching what is now considered a very powerful modality in many areas of psychology, cognitive therapy. But I want to share with you the three principles that he explains clearly in the book. He says all of cognitive therapy is based on three simple yesodes, three simple foundation principles. Number one, your thoughts shape your moods. If I think I'm going to make a million dollars, I'm happy. If I think I just destroyed my life, I'm unhappy. But it's the thoughts that cross my mind that shape my moods. Okay, that's a nice concept. Concept number two, depression is caused by pervasively negative thoughts. It's a feeling that I'm a loser, the feeling that I'll never succeed, the feeling that things are gloomy and bad and never will be any different. Those thoughts cause my feelings. It's the thinking that way, the pervasively negative thinking that causes my moods. It happens to be true that there are different people. Some people have an optimistic bias. By nature, their brain just spews out optimistic, happy thoughts. And some people are the opposite. They have a pessimistic bias. By nature, they tend to dwell and think negative thoughts. But it's the thoughts that cross your conscious mind that shape your mood, and a depressed person got into that state of depression because of the pervasively negative thoughts. But it's a third principle that is most eye-opening. He says, clinical studies have proven that those negative thoughts are almost always grossly distorted, that they're twisted. And he gives many, many examples of people who are extraordinarily successful but the thoughts that cross their brain are that they're a loser. A person could be brilliant, but he thinks he's dumb. And he gives an example. A college student was depressed, and she comes to him, and, and she knew, her first midterm, she knew she, she blew it. There were 17 questions out of 100, and 17 questions she knew she got wrong. She was certain. She was certain she got them wrong. Now, she was a very bright student, and she studied, and she was doing very well, and she realized she's going to flunk out of college. 17 out of 100 she got wrong. Until she got the grade. The professor gave her an 83 and said, this is the highest grade of any student 
I've ever had in this course. It's true she got 17 wrong, she got 83 right, and she got an A-plus because it was the highest grade that anyone had ever gotten on that test from that professor. But you see, the pervasive negative thoughts that a person has creates the mood, and when a person has depression, they're almost always thoughts that are wrong, that are twisted, that are distorted, that have no connection to reality. Now, the reason why this is so brilliant and therapeutic is because once you realize that my thoughts have no connection to reality, you can start deprogramming yourself. But you have to do just that. You have to write down your accomplishments. You have to write down the reality. You have to deal with the twisted thoughts. And I'd like to share with you what Dr. Burns has brought to the world, and that is something that the Ebenezer put in writing 500, 600 years ago, maybe more, that which Chazal told us thousands of years ago, and that is the thoughts of my mind shape my feelings. But the thoughts of my mind are not always correct. And the thoughts of my mind are not always driven by me. Now, if you deal with depression, you have to deal with it. It's wise to work with a professional, because finding your twisted thinking, finding where you're off in your thinking isn't always so easy. But the basic work is to learn to control your thoughts. But that is most of Avodah Hashem. What the Ebenezer is teaching us is a concept that applies to everything. You see, don't desire not just your neighbor's wife, his car, his house, chamoro, shoro, v'chol, asheler, echa. Don't desire anything that your neighbor, how could I not desire? He showed up in that green jag, and that was the color I always wanted. It's the most gorgeous car. If you understand that Hashem gives that which each person is supposed to have, and that which he has, I can't have. And more than Hashem gives me what I need, you won't desire it. It's not an object, that does, it never enters your conscious mind as something that I want. When he drives up, if you say to yourself, man, that is gorgeous, I wish I had it. That car, I need it, I want it. All of a sudden you start desiring it. All of a sudden you start needing it. All of a sudden you start wanting it, needing it, desiring it. And it becomes stronger and stronger, you become jealous. And before you know it, it spins out of control. But if before it even enters that stage... And you stop yourself and you say, that's his. And Hashem gives him what he's supposed to have. And Hashem gives me what I'm supposed to have. It doesn't become an object of desire. It doesn't become something you need, something you want, something you crave. And you learn to control the thoughts of your mind. This concept is fundamental to everything that we do. What the Ebenezer is teaching us is the concept is that the thoughts that cross my brain are things that I don't always control. They're certainly not always true but they will shape immediately how I feel. If a person wants to be happily married, you have to work on that. If a person wants to be happy about anything, you have to work on that. Because no matter what I have, other people are going to have better or more, and I'll be ever in a state of needing and wanting. And it's not just about women. It's about cars. It's about money. It's about positions, honor. He knows how to learn better than me. He does more mitzvahs. He's more famous, whatever it may be. Understanding that objects of desire are things that we learn to desire. Desire is natural. <clears throat> wanting to be famous might be a natural feeling. Wanting a lot of money may be a natural feeling. <clears throat> but when you recognize that Hashem gives exactly that which I'm supposed to have, and <clears throat> the fact that He has a lot of money and I don't, that's what Hashem decided for Him, that's not for me. You don't learn to desire it, you don't want it. You become happy with what you have, and you train yourself to be a happy person as Hashem wants us to be. And I want to close with one last thought. Because I don't want you to think that this is only an issue of learning how to control desire. I don't want you to think that it's only based on the culture that you're in, 
This is a concept that applies to almost every area of life. And more than anything, this is most of Musr. And I want to give you an example. When I was a young man in high school, it was a different time, and almost no one I knew went to base Medrash. After you graduate high school, you went to college, you started your career, you go to become a lawyer, a doctor, an Indian chief, you started life. But there was almost no such thing as, certainly no one I knew went to base Medrash. After high school, I went to Israel, I came back, I decided I'm going to Chavetz Chaim, and I parked myself in Yeshiva. And I was very happy, I was shtagging, I was learning, it was beautiful, beautiful times. And every once in a while, I'd meet one of my buddies from the old days, and oftentimes, they'd be like this strange shape of, what are you doing? What are you wasting your time? I mean, come on, like, you know, you should be, you know, I'm becoming a lawyer, I'm becoming a doctor, what are you, you're sitting there learning tomorrow, what are, what are you wasting your time? Now, believe me, it didn't bother me at all, and I loved what I was doing, and I was ex- ecstatic with it. But nevertheless, one day during Musa Seder, I started thinking about the following mushal. The mushal is like this. It's afternoon Seder, and I'm sitting with my chavrusa in a sandbox. But instead of sand, they're diamonds. There are diamonds all around us. We're sitting in a sandbox filled with diamonds. Two carat, five carat, ten carat. I pick up one, I show it to my chavrusa. No, no, it has a little floor, put it down. Oh, this one, this beauty. Oh, put that one in your pocket. He picks up one that's a five carat. Oh, it's a beauty. Yep, he puts it in his pocket. And all day long, we're picking up diamonds, putting this one in your pocket, taking this one, putting, discarding that one. <clears throat> one of my friends from the old days walks in and says, what are you guys doing wasting your time? Those little things. This is a rock. And he pulls out a big 10-pound earth rock. This, those little things, those are trinkets, they weigh nothing. This is a rock, it weighs 10 pounds. <laughs> you guys are wasting your time. <clears throat> what do I say to the guy? Nar, your earth rock is worth 10 cents. These diamonds are worth millions of dollars. You're a fool. The reason why that marshal captivated me, because was, it was exactly the point. I was learning, I was, I was doing something for eternity. I was creating <clears throat> ultimate value, ultimate kedusha. And what he was involved in was nice, but nowhere near what I was doing. But what the Mushal did for me was concretize in my mind, crystallize in my mind exactly the point. And it's not just that I'm doing this and I'm happy. What I'm doing is incredibly valuable. <clears throat> every word of Torah is another mitzvah. Every word of Torah is incalculably valuable. I'm sitting in that <clears throat> box, sitting there with my charusa, taking this diamond, that diamond, and a friend comes out, oh, stone, big 10-pound stone, give you a nar. Now, you, your currency is so false and so vaporous. But again, the point of the mushal was I was trying to train my thinking because the thoughts in our mind shape the way we feel, and I wanted to feel the value of limitatory. I wanted to feel the value of it. And that's something you have to do. That's all of learning Musr. You have to learn to control the thoughts in your mind. You have to learn to use mushalim, to use to learn affirmations, the reason why we learn Musr and we're supposed to learn Musr every day and learning Musr every day means from a safer. And I spend, by the way, it's been 35 years now, I say this all the time, I've been in therapy for 35 years. But not just therapy, intense therapy. Half hour to an hour every single day. Every single day I'm in therapy. Because that's what Musr is. I'm working on my anger, my jealousy, <clears throat> my desire, my amuna, my bitachan. But the way you work on it is you read it, you think about it, you come up with Mishalim and you say things again and again and again until the thoughts begin becoming pervasive. And until the thoughts get so powerful that they change the way I feel, suddenly I have more bitachan. Suddenly I see Hashem's presence more. And suddenly I'm no longer jealous. Because the way we think becomes the way we feel, becomes who we are forever. And Hashem grant us the wisdom and understanding to put this into practice.